Hey there, global listeners. If you're loving the insights we're bringing you on This Week Explained, it's time to turn this into a movement. How? Easy. Share the wisdom. Tell your friends, family, and colleagues about us. Let's make geopolitics a dinner table conversation around the world. Also, subscribe wherever you listen. Be the first to get the scoop on our latest episodes. The more subscribers we have, the louder our voice in the world of geopolitics. As well, please rate and review. Your opinion does matter to us. It's not just feedback. It's the fuel that propels us to the top, helping others discover our global community. This is not just a podcast. It's a movement. Subscribe, share, rate, and review, because together we're rewriting the narrative of global affairs. Finally, keep those ears tuned in. We've got more amazing episodes coming your way every Friday on This Week Explained. Stay informed, stay involved, and stay safe out there. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You are now listening to This Week Explained. Welcome to This Week Explained. I'm Tiana with Curvin as my co-host, and together we will help you understand the complexities of our dynamic, ever-changing world. So let's just get right to it. What is on the agenda this week, Curvin? Yeah, there's a lot to cover. So we got Russia, Ukraine. We're going to do Israel, Hamas, you know, the two big conflicts. That's what we want to talk about. But then there's a report that certain European Union countries are talking about removing funding for UN aid to Palestine. And so we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about is that the approach you should take or should you also talk about removing funding for Israel? Right. Um, I think these are important questions that we all need to talk about. Then we'll get into more ships being seized in the Middle East. And it's very interesting what happened this week. Um, There's a lot of play, a lot of players that were involved in this. After that, I know we talked about North Korea in this, the satellite launch last week, but they came out this week and said that they were capturing key U.S. targets within their satellites. We're going to talk about, is does that matter? Because does the satellite even work? We'll, we'll get into some of the analysis on that. Right. And then there was breaking news this week. I think this is the big story of the week, that there could be a conflict brewing in South America. And we've been talking about that all year, how South America is is one of the geopolitical regions that are going to be very important. We are definitely one of the few that kept South America on our radar all year, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and so we've got something we're brewing. We're saying we're the only one, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are one of few. <laughs> I mean, with everything else going on, right? People right. are focused on, on a bunch of other things, rightfully so, but, but we try to break it down real quick, all of these things. Uh, and at the end, we've got a listener question. Uh, I, I received a, a question and they said they would like to have it answered on the podcast and not through an email. So we'll get to that at the end. Okay. Well, 
your wish is our command, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're well, just here get, for you. Well, let's get right into it. What is the latest coming out of Ukraine? All right. So this week we have started to see weather slow down. What was already a slow moving offensive on both sides. Uh, so the southern regions of Ukraine and Russia have been just completely battered by storms. It's caused uh, widespread power cuts, mass flooding, traffic chaos, just all around destruction in the southern areas. Uh, in addition to that, something really important, the wife of a uh, Ukrainian of Ukraine's top intelligence official was poisoned this week. OK, <laughs> we'll stop there for a second. Can you tell us more about the poisoning incident? Yes. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, just a really interesting event. According to Ukrainian media outlets, the wife of Ukrainian military's top intelligence official was poisoned, and it was confirmed by Andrei Yusov. He's the head of the Ukrainian military intelligence service. So, so the incident is still under investigation. They're still looking into it this week. And honestly, it's unclear who actually is responsible for the poisoning, but I mean, I, I don't consider myself a genius, and it doesn't take a genius to come up with the possible culprit for this particular poisoning. Did she pass away, or is she just in no, the hospital? she's in the hospital. Okay, well, I don't think anybody would be too surprised if it came out that the Russian intelligence community was involved at some level, yeah. <laughs> at the very least. But I want to get back to the battlefield for a second here. We are only a few months away from the two-year anniversary of this, quote, special military operation on the Russian side. Um, in the first six months, Ukraine really surprised some people. And then over the summer into September, they made quite a few breakthroughs along the front lines. But now we seem to be shifting gear here and talking about a stalemate. Like, how did we get to this point? And is it just the issue with weather or is it something more, you know, lack of funding? Right. And soldiers, I was, <laughs> morale. I, I will say you have the two factions, the, the, the ultimate pro-Ukraine and ultimate pro-Russia that just saw blindly on each side that either side is winning. And those analysts in the middle kept warning about this. The longer this war goes on, the worse it's going to be for Ukraine because Russia just has basically unlimited troops to just throw at this battle. Now, according to... It's kind of gross. I know. And this is why we keep talking against governments who want to just go to war to fix, to solve problems. Or to get resources or right. to put other people under their thumb or to change the boundaries of their country right. to what they deem is their land, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's what we try to talk. We speak out against on this this podcast. It's probably one of the one of a few areas where we do not remain unbiased because we're, we try to hold governments accountable for what they're doing now. For this, Ukraine's top general, who's Valery Zelensky, um, he said that the Ukrainian and Russian militaries have reached a level of technology that puts them into a stalemate. He said, unless there's a massive leap in military technology that gives one side a, a decisive advantage, there's probably going to be no deep breakthrough in in the war. Um, and it, so we talk about talking both sides. Um, 
for what it's worth, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky issued a rebuttal to his own um, top general. He said the war is not at a stalemate. I have news for him. It really is. And, and you can tell by the way the news is talking about it. And honestly, by the way, the U.S. is talking about it. Um, but honestly, but as president... Sorry, go. Well, no, I just thought like they had unlimited resources and like bodies, like you were saying, to throw at this. Russia war. does. So how could it? Be? I know. So how could it be a stalemate if they have all these unlimited things? Because like, how is it not swinging more towards Russia at this point is what I'm getting at. Gotcha. And that's that's why this general talks about that technological breakthrough because Russia can keep throwing forces at it. Uh-huh. And as as of this moment, Ukraine has the uh, has the munitions that it can fire back at those soldiers, those Russian soldiers from a distance. Okay. So a one on one troop on troop battle, Russia has the advantage. Okay. As far as munitions and the quality of munitions, because of what Ukraine is getting from the U.S., from the U.K., from Germany. They have an advantage there. So that that's where he's at. Now, in Zelensky's case, he's president of Ukraine. He has to say that they are winning this war, whether that's true or not. Because if he says we're losing this war, he's going to lose support. So what could the U.S. provide Ukraine that could possibly help to turn the tides? And does Russia maybe have an ally that could upgrade their military technologies? outside of North Korea, allegedly. Allegedly. allegedly North Korea. <laughs> who's only giving them munitions that the Soviet Union first gave them. <laughs> so well, They're like, we don't need these. Yeah, these we're not crap. using them now. Yeah, we're well, not, yeah, we're not using them. You can have them back. <laughs> um, but I'm, and I'm not talking about like munitions because both sides have similar types of munitions. We're talking about things that are more advanced technologically. Um, and so if they had anything like that from the U.S., that would be seen, in my analysis, as a provocative action from the Russian side. So Russia would be like, that's that's too much. And I think you, as the United States, are now involved in the war. Right. Um, it was already a huge deal when the Abram tanks were shipped over to Ukraine. Yeah. You remember they, they had said that that was too much of an escalation. Mm-hmm. So I do. I would say any help in the realm of like advanced artificial intelligence or um, cyber related attack methods, that's going to be looked at by Putin as an escalation um, on NATO's part. Okay. And, and even then, I don't really think that gives Ukraine an advantage because that's going to take years for them to acquire the knowledge to use that kind of stuff, meaning you'd probably have U.S. personnel utilizing that equipment so it would be and a it would all, yeah it would definitely be us overstepping yeah and, and the the real advantage would come by the united states putting boots on the ground and fighting alongside the ukrainians that's how the ukrainians get an advantage and there's no uh, appetite for that i i don't the American yeah. people don't right um and and so i don't think i guess i for one wouldn't want to see that happen and i don't think it's going to happen now you asked about russia uh as for Russia, it's it's already been developing advanced military technologies um, in in key sectors. Some that I already talked about, but military robotics, um, their their space program is better than Ukraine's, obviously. 
and then their artificial intelligence program. Now, Russia's defense industry is also developing new systems and capabilities in military robotics. They've successfully integrated unmanned vehicles, particularly the aerial drones, into its military operations. Also, Russia right now is exploiting loopholes and export controls to buy vast quantities of technology from the West that it's using to fight its war against Ukraine. So they're still getting stuff from the West to bolster their capabilities. So what's happening here is they found a loophole to get through it, and that material goes through China, and China then exports it out to Russia. So does that that mean... It's an escalation towards Ukraine, and now we are technically fighting on Russia's side. I'm just, no, I'm just using their logic. Yeah, you know, I get reversing you. their logic. Yeah, that's I all. Get you. It's it's man, you know, geopolitics is confusing. Yeah, it's like it's all based on layered, multifaceted. Yeah, so many players. So okay, so we obviously remain at a stalemate with neither side ready to come to the negotiating table. So let's move on to the other major conflict. And as you predicted last week, Israel and Hamas have been adding days to their temporary truce, which is allowing for a great deal of hostages and prisoners to be released from each side. So at this point, have both sides held to the ceasefire agreements? Um, yeah, well, I mean, that depends on which side you believe. Right. If you trust no one, then the answer is like, not really on, on both sides of the table. So during the initial ceasefire, there were some discussions from Hamas about not releasing that second wave of hostages on the second day because they said Israel was not allowing humanitarian aid from Egypt to enter Gaza. Which they're not, right? No, they they have. The, that yep. humanitarian aid in, uh, I believe it started with 100 humanitarian trucks and that's been increasing um, daily and they continue to push the ceasefire date now, they have until December 3rd. That's to, a good day. Yeah. They, so they have until December 3rd before the Israeli parliament has to revote to approve a ceasefire. So they had a 10-day window where they could just continue agreeing to a ceasefire between the IDF and Hamas. Mm-hmm. Once December 3rd comes, they have to revote on that. So that's going to be a key date coming up. Now, multiple reasons. Yes, it's it's important for a lot of people. (laughs) I'd say it's important globally. Right. Because it was a very important day. Um, Well, now, I want to say Israel denied that they were not allowing that humanitarian aid. Like I said, hundreds of trucks have now crossed. That's been confirmed. The trucks were confirmed. Yes, I can't confirm or deny whether Israel was holding withholding the supplies because you just can't trust what the governments are putting out. Like, yeah, they're that, trying to sway people. Yeah. Um, but when we talked about what Hamas said Israel's doing, Israel claimed that Hamas was not abiding by the, the ceasefire and they've been taking pot shots at the IDF who were still in Gaza. Okay, so which side benefits the most from this temporary ceasefire? Now, you know, last week we talked about it, and it was Iran, right? They're not one of the sides. If you take out the proxy portion of it, right? they're still benefiting. Although they're losing some some benefits because Saudi Arabia came to Iran and has actually told them they need to stop and and kind of find a way to get to a truce. So that's 
key and that's important, I think. But honestly, if if you're asking me personally, I think the people of Gaza and the people of Israel that were taken hostage benefit the most because if they're actually getting the aid though. Right. If so and then like I said, that was confirmed that those trucks are coming in. I mean, you said they're confirmed going through, but you can't confirm whether or not they were actually distributed to the people of right. Gaza. Okay, now well it's a Hamas issue because Hamas is going to be given the aid. They are the the government of Gaza. Yeah. So they're going to be provided the aid to provide to the people. Okay. Um, by all accounts, that's happening. People are getting the the need there things that they needed. They, now there okay. is some discussion that price there's some price gouging going on. Uh, and that's just how that wasn't even their stuff works. to begin with. It was I, literally donated. Why are they charging? Exactly. Uh that's ridiculous. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Sorry. <laughs> I'm about to get fired up. So you better just get 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 your okay. point. <laughs> Let's get to it. Um so like I said, the the people of Gaza and then the Israelis that were taken hostage benefit the most because those hostages get to return. The Palestinian prisoners get to return to their land. The 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 people of Gaza are returning back to whatever's left. Exactly, and, whatever's left. And then whatever's the Israeli left. prisoners get to go back to their homes that are still standing. Right. Okay. Yeah, if that's the case, because, you know, Hamas has been shooting rockets at Israeli towns. So now Israel has an advantage because they have the Iron Dome. So that that's why you see less destruction on the Israeli side. Right. Because Hamas is still sending the same amount of rockets as Israel sending back to them. Even during the ceasefire? No, no, no. The ceasefire oh. is great because there's not anything. Sorry, I'm just, I just yeah. need all the details, <laughs> you know, so I can make... And I mean, I'm trying to be like, I'm, I'm looking at the clock over here going, I promised everybody 30 minutes and we have never gotten to that. Are since. people really complaining? No, nobody's complaining. Minutes? No, people okay. love it. Well, I'm so sorry that the world is a dumpster fire right now. <laughs> it's it's a me thing, right? You know how I work. Yeah, I don't worry about it. Just, just finish. Okay, so I'm sorry. I didn't mean to distract. I just wanted to know which side possibly benefits. Right, so the there are there is some semblance of normalcy. Okay. Right. Um, but like I said last week, being taken hostage and or having your home destroyed or like I've said- Well, having, having your family murdered because right. I'm sure there are plenty of Palestinians who are being released right now and then they return and their family's dead. Yeah. Or they have nothing to go back to. Right. 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 Okay. And and interjecting. I'm sorry. And I kind of talked about how being deployed in a war zone, you get rockets all the time. You know, it's not every day, but continuously, you're always got that in the back of your head, and so that does something to your brain, right? Even if you think, "Oh, I'm used to it," it affects your brain when you come back home. I remember vividly coming back home the first time from Iraq and driving back. You know, my parents were driving me back from the airport. And fireworks started going off. And for a moment, it was like, it shocked me. You were transported back to Iraq. Yeah. For for just a moment. and That's I'm called not, PTSD, my love. Right, yeah. And I, I'm not trying to, to put out there like, oh, yeah, I had all these he's experiences. Not, he's also not trying to compare his experience with what's going on right, right. now either. He's just saying 
kind of. I'm just little, putting that out there for like it like takes he knows a toll his brain. Yeah. on any human's mental health. Right. Um, and and so my question is, does anyone really benefit that it's just a ceasefire and it's not yeah. peace? Um, and that the answer to that is probably not. But I'm sure what you were asking before I went on a tangent was who benefits from a military standpoint. And I'd say Hamas benefits the most um, because they can kind of they can reconsolidate. So they have a smaller force, a smaller military right. force, and they can reconsolidate that smaller force and strategize a better war game against the IDF. OK, uh, now Israel could benefit. They they could benefit. I think they are already benefiting by improving their current global public image. So there's not the pictures of hospitals being destroyed, schools being blown up. Right. Um, And and so the media hasn't, I would, I don't want to say hasn't been able to broadcast that, but it's not there. So that's not getting put out. Um, Once fighting picks up again, you're probably going to see those social media posts and, and news articles again, because it's important to highlight that. Yeah. Right now, both sides are playing a propaganda game. Um, and I would say that each with the way propaganda works, each side is winning with their core bases. So uh, a few examples. I've seen pro-Israel posts about the Hamas tunnels. Um, yeah. Some posts that every pro-Palestinian public figure is an anti-Semite. <laughs> uh, on the flip side, there are pro-Palestinian posts that tried to explain how maybe the hostages look like they were well treated. So it wasn't a big deal. Um, there were even some posts. Uh, this was on like when I went through Twitter and things like that. They were trying to convince people that the hostages actually wanted to stay with Hamas. I saw a couple of those. Yeah, it's let me tell like, you. There was like a 14 year old girl, Israeli girl okay. that was being released. And I can't remember what her name was, but her captor or whatever, he had his face covered, but he addressed her by name and he said goodbye and said her name and she was just like it was relief it looked like relief to yeah. me not like she wanted to stay but i don't i've seen several videos like that though yeah and for sure and let me let's just squash that if you were kidnapped and taken hostage you don't want to stay there now there are you know stockholm syndrome and things like that yeah where you, if you stay long enough for years, that kind of becomes your home. I don't but think I don't even think it takes years. I think it's a like coping mechanism as well. Especially if you don't know when the end isn't when the end's in sight. I imagine you do start kind of like fostering an affection for your yeah. captors. Yeah, so I probably would to agree deal with, with the scary situation. You don't know when it's going to end. You don't know what's going to happen to you. So, of course, you're going to be on your best behavior. You're not going to do anything to antagonize your captors. You're going to be, you know, what they want you to be in that moment. Yeah, and and being taken... So, capturing someone, taking someone hostage, there's two strategic advantages to that. One, you take a military person hostage... And you can gain intelligence from that military person if you can break them down, right? Now, what Hamas is, they didn't take military personnel. They took civilians. And the yeah. strategic advantage to civilians is that you have them. And so now you can barter. Now you can gain things to get the release of that person. You mm-hmm. cannot barter and and gain something if you 
mistreat or kill that person. So typically you will get as as good of treatment as you can. Yeah. Now, women and children were put in cages. That's not humane treatment. Right. But as humane as as they could be. So I could see in some cases when we had we you heard hostages say I was treated very well. Mm-hmm. They probably were in the sense that they were kidnapped, taken hostage. They probably thought, oh, my head's going to get chopped off pretty yeah. soon. Yeah, they were expecting like torture and, right. you know. There's no just... reason to torture a civilian. They don't have intelligence to give Hamas. Right. So that just would not happen. Um, and, and I don't think either side benefits from the dialogues that I just talked about, the, the Israeli dialogue and the Palestinian dialogue. So please stop those. Like, let, let's talk about the humanitarian stuff. Yeah. Um, really, those those conversations don't change much on the ground militarily. It only changes how we feel about certain things. And if you're dug in to your side, you're not going to change your opinion. So so the conversations don't matter. Israel says it's not going to stop until Hamas is completely annihilated. That is their goal. Hamas says it cannot go back to business as usual. One of the top leaders of Hamas said uh, just today that October 7th was was just a practice. It was just an exercise. There will be more. Oh, because Israel cannot exist. Is that they explicitly said because Israel cannot exist? Yeah. They really said Israel should not exist? Okay. They said Israel. Now, listen, they're not saying Jews should not exist. Oh, I know. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I I just want to be clear to... Yeah, okay. No, I was already clear on what you were implying right there. But yeah, not saying Jews needed to be wiped off, but just Israel should not exist. Okay. Yeah. Now, there is that thought, right? It's not a public statement, but... Listen, I've I've seen videos. Lots of people feel that way. Yeah. Iran says Jews should not exist. Um, and that's why is that why they're fighting with their proxy groups? Exactly. They're yeah. hoping that Jews as a whole. As yeah, they're they're taking the fight people. to Europe and the United States, and okay, and that's their plan that they should not exist, and Humans. that's not right at all. Obviously, yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, their whole thinking is because that land. That Israel sits on, yeah, was they say it was stolen from the Palestinians. Why does that matter to Iran, though? Why are they so hardcore on it? So that's Iran, what I don't like. What did they get out of it by backing Palestine? They get the control of Palestine and they get the resources within Israel. So you think that they are kind of throwing their hat into the ring in order to kind of hold it over Palestine's head later on if they do wind up wiping out Israel? Well, what, kind of like control them or yeah, like and and it's just like so, so they want to be the gov the replacement government after Hamas. They want a complete. I'm just Arab, I just don't yeah, know what they're. They want an is. Arab control. They want a Muslim control of the Middle East completely. Okay, which ninety percent of the Middle East is Muslim controlled. They're Muslim right. countries, right? Right. There's only right. one Jewish state. That's Israel. Israel's right. the only Jewish state. Um, so that is how they feel. If Palestine takes Israel, we have, they have now a complete Muslim state in all of the Middle East, and then they can move that to other areas. So think about it just you like think we talked- they talk- would attack Palestine afterwards? 
That is an interesting question. I'm, just, I'm going. I'm going off on all these tangents now. <laughs> and that's that's a historical discussion. Um, okay, so we and, that's something that needs further research. Well, no. no so I mean, there's got to be an angle to this. Like it doesn't make sense why they're just like, no, we need to return the land to the Palestinian people, and then that would be the end of it. Like there's always an angle. Yeah, and and this is a historical conflict between oh, Shias and Sunnis. No, I. Within yeah. the Muslim community, so you think after that it's going to become a conflict between yeah, those two groups? I, and this is what Saddam Hussein was worried about when he was the the president of Iraq. So, oh, that guy. And we will we will going to get to to everything else, but I do kind of want to. I'm glad you brought this okay. up. I want to kind of bring this up, okay? Um, because in the context of history, it's a very good question because Saddam Hussein was they you know Iraq fought a war with Iran. Saddam right. Hussein was always worried that Iran was going to take Iraq. Well, guess what? That was part of why when the U.S. pressured Iraq about weapons of mass destruction, Saddam Hussein continued to deny it and deny it and deny it. And mm-hmm. if they had weapons of mass destruction or not, he was never going to admit to it. Or, well, he didn't deny it. He just said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Because if he had publicly denied that they had weapons capable of destroying places, mm-hmm. if he denied it, Iran was going to invade and take over. Oh, so it was kind of like a bluff. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, I'm not saying, you know, we've, we've had the argument, did, did Iraq have weapons of mass destruction? Everybody says, now everybody says, well, looking historically, no, they didn't. Um, well, that's intelligence. It was an intelligence failure. That stuff will come out in a few years. Okay. And we can piece that together. But guess what happened with all of that? Now Iran does control Iraq. Right. And Iran has proxy forces within Iraq. Okay, so, so if histo- they help Palestine, they'll probably move their proxy forces there too. And then- That's why you're here, Tiana. You understand okay. all this well, stuff. I need to, I well, it's not that I understand it. I just need it explained in yeah. in very minute detail because I want to make sure I have it all situated. Yeah, and uh, it's there's a lot, and that's why I was like, okay. we'll talk about it right now, and then we can, okay. we you can you can keep going. Yeah, but that's the basis. And so, if anybody has any questions about that, please email and and I can explain it. I'll okay. do a voice memo because it's <laughs> not it's too much to to write okay. out. Okay. Well, obviously, I asked that one simple question, and then you said quite a bit. And yeah. to me, it looks like no one really benefits. But yeah. I mean, obviously, that's war, right? Yeah. Does anyone really benefit from war? I mean, no, no, they don't. Not so, even the governments who gain the land because they become economic failures. Okay, so hopefully, we can all agree that the civilians should be protected and that brings us to the next topic which is why the heck is the european union removing aid for palestine i mean shouldn't we be all coming together to support the people of palestine what the heck i'm gonna say first i know you know this but Mm -hmm. i want to get it this is gonna be this is out for everybody to hear so i just want to get my stance first out there oh great that i agree with you okay (laughs) <laughs> we as a global community should be doing everything to protect civilians. That's from fighting to get hostages released to providing aid for Palestinians that are caught up 
in a war. Don't don't take a side, people. Like the hostage, the, what happened on October seventh was a tragedy. Right, should be dealt with. But the the killing of civilians, tens of thousands, be, that should be broadcast as well. So, right. Uh, I also want to caveat this. It was it was kind of tongue in cheek what what I did at the beginning because I was kind of being vague about it um, by saying the EU is. I said they were denying funds to the UN. The the EU is not denying funds to help to organizations helping bring aid to Palestinians. They're removing funding to an organization. That organization is the United Nations Rights and Work Agency. It's the UNRWA. It's a Palestinian aid organization. And they did this because the the group UN Watch, it's a watchdog organization, and their mm-hmm. stated mission is to monitor the performance of the United Nations. That's their stated mission. Okay. They released a report showing that some within the UNRWA were actually caught praising the actions of Hamas during the attack on October 7th. Okay, well, as we know, there are a bunch of watchdog groups, but for the most part, they aren't really unbiased. That's true. And usually they put out information skewed to one side or the other. So do you know where the UN watches biases lean or is this really a nonpartisan organization keeping the UN honest? Okay, so first they are accredited by the United Nations. Mm-hmm. Their mission statement says that their goal is to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, the scourge of war. I think we can all get behind that, right? Right. Now, looking, I, I did a deep dive into the group. Their three main focuses are China, Russia, and Iran. Hmm. So those three, you can kind of see where you know, they are biased. Right. Now, if if you're going to choose adversaries, you're going to choose a bias. Those are probably the top three to go against. Right. Right. So, I mean, is there any truth to their allegations about members inside the UNRWA praising Hamas? Or is it just that those members spoke out in support of Palestine? That is a key. uh, That's a key discussion. Right. Right. Because I have seen, just like you have, that pro-Palestinian posts have been right. seen as, well, they support Hamas, when if you actually talk to the person, that person will tell you, no, I don't support what Hamas did. Right. I just don't like what Israel's doing. Right. So, UN Watch did identify multiple Facebook accounts from uh, UNRWA staff that posted on social media what appears to be praise for the, the October 7th attacks from Hamas. I say appears. Okay. Um, one teacher posted, uh, this is a quote from one of the teachers, Allah is great. So Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, that's Allah is great, Allah is great. Reality surpasses our wildest dreams. Did they say that in Arabic? Uh, I t- so I read all this in English. Uh, I know. I read it all in English because well, my read... Arabic is not that great anymore. Sorry. Um, You have... A very expensive membership on Duolingo, sir. You need to keep up. I know. I've been I've been learning my languages. Come on, you've got to be a polyglot before this is over. <laughs> I'm so what proud are you doing? of you. I know. Um, now that that's what they said. That was as the events on October seventh. So I'll say it again. They said though the main takeaway is reality surpasses our wildest dreams. So they didn't even explicitly state. 
No, but this was as children were getting beheaded on October 7th. Oh. So Okay, that's that, gross. That's gross. Okay. But like you said, it's not it's not explicit. Yeah. You can I mean, I say things that people can infer Yeah. Oh, he must mean. Exactly. Like for instance, earlier in this episode I was talking about con- you know, countries that are trying to change their boundary like their yeah. boundaries of their country. I was explicitly referring to Russia and Ukraine and um China at Taiwan. Taiwan. Yeah. That that was that's what I was talking about. Okay. But people could infer that maybe you're saying that right. Would not go and identify that. Exactly. And honestly, and somebody think... else, st- somebody will still tell me, yeah, I know what you meant. Right. I, I don't give a crap. Whatever. And, and I think we do a disservice to dialogue when we com- when we have to caveat everything we say with this is explicitly what I mean. Yeah. We just have to have conversations and and stop inferring what the other person may be saying to you. And then you taking question, your inferences as true yeah, as opposed yeah. to... If you have a question, the ask it. The intention. Now, so that was the first one, and I think that was the least egregious in my mind. Yeah, I mean... A lie I mean, is great. It's right? in reference to what you're saying. It's in reference to. That's disgusting. But, I mean, honestly, you don't know. It is an inference. Listen, there are days I wake up and see what... Our, you know, see a, a review for our podcast, and I think that reality surpassed my wildest dreams because I didn't think <laughs> anybody would care what we're saying. I still don't care what we're saying. <laughs> I'm just so, <laughs> so it could have been for anything, right? Okay. I don't know because so, I didn't do a, the deep dive into that particular comment, but okay, there was another, um, there was a principal from a UNRWA funded school. Okay. Posted, um, they posted that the attack was justified. The Hamas, the Hamas attack, was justified as a means of restoring rights and restoring Palestinian grievances. Mm-hmm. It's a little more egregious. Yeah, there's less to infer there. Yeah, I mean it's uh, pretty explicitly stated. I just can't get behind attacking civilians for any reason. For any reason, I can't. I can't. Whether they feel wronged or justified or not, it just makes me want to cry. Yeah. Now, uh, one other one that they wanted to highlight. Now, these are all posts that the UN Watch highlighted and okay. showed were, you know, Facebook posts or social media posts. Right. And uh, another administrator within the UNRWA posted, uh, quote, welcome to the great October <laughs> as the Hamas attack was going. Oh, jeez. Um, so October the, didn't turn out so great, though, did it? No, and we're in November now, and, and things are getting worse, I would say. Yeah, right. So on the surface, there's no mention of Hamas. That was right. your main question. I thought that was an important thing to, to kind of caveat, to talk about. There is no mention of Hamas, that what Hamas did was the greatest thing that ever happened. But okay. those are, are some... I, even the first, this pretty tasteless post. Reveling in the suffering yeah. of innocent people is, it's gross no matter how you. And then also trying to convince yourself that civilian, Israeli civilians weren't murdered and children weren't kidnapped and yeah. children weren't beheaded. You know, we, we've seen videos, people saying that never happened. 
Well, there's GoPro evidence from him, Hamas militants themselves who were posting on people's happening. personal Facebook accounts. And yeah. yeah. Now, I do they also. Went, they went no, I'm Keep going. No, no, no. That's, there's another quote. No, I just wanted to say that oh. um, the UN Watch should investigate Israeli based accounts. You're right. Maybe saying some similar things as bombs are dropped on people's Which houses. There, there are people saying things because I've seen it. Right. There so are in, people. Investigate those. If those mm-hmm. are from aid organizations, then you stop the funding. Right. Right. Um, I, I'm not saying they're going to find people inciting violence from aid organizations. Just investigate it across the board. I don't think they're doing that right now. No, and, and for both sides, I think I they're think, always skewed to one right. side, you know. And right. since it's the UN, obviously it's skewed more towards Israel. That's false, actually. It and, is false. Yep. Yeah, so Iran is actually on the UN Human Rights Council, right? And the UN has condemned Israel, but has not condemned Hamas. And oh, the, the that ought to tell you something. Now. That's crazy. Mike Mike Baker and I talked about it. We we mm-hmm. kind of said the same thing. Like, thank you for correcting me. By the way, no, 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 no. and we should be able to do it that. Just seem, it just seemed it kind of weird that they specifically targeted these three rather vague, right? Yeah, hosts, and then decided to pull funding based on that. It just seemed like they were leaning more towards Israel, just based on that. That's the only. That's the only thing I have to now. You like, and watch. If you're talking about UN Watch, I'm yeah, confused. I would. <laughs> How many you like? What the heck? I don't. So, uh, sorry. I don't care I, about all these stupid. If UN you were confused, then someone else is confused. So let okay. me try to uh, bridge that gap. Oh, UN Watch is the watchdog group uh. for the United Nations. Okay. The United Nations has allowed Iran to be part of their humanitarian security group. Okay. I, I think that. It's just dumb. I don't even know the word for it. It's an oxymoron to have Iran on there. It's like having Russia as the president of the UN Human Rights Council, right? Right. Which happened, correct? Yes. So the I would so basically say, they're all jacked up. Yeah the the UN is a puppet organization. I won't even get into it because then I'll be a conspiracy theorist. But I have no love lost for the United Nations. Yeah. Just, that doesn't mean people don't need to be helped. Doesn't mean that UN Watch should not investigate Israeli-based accounts. I will say the UN Watch is pro-Israeli. So I'm sorry if I misheard you. That's what I said. Pro-Israeli. That's what I meant was pro-Israeli. I mean, I didn't word it correctly. It was yeah, it's the so they are the, pro-Israeli. The UN Watch. So the the, the watchdog group. Not anymore. So the 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 watchdog group, which is a nonprofit to keep the UN in check, basically. That's what they say. Okay, right. They are pro-Israeli. The United Nations is pro-Palestine. Okay. And that's because of Iran and what Iran wants to do. So we'll get back to to the investors. So I wanted to point out that what happens too often in the media or any other organizations, um, when they point the finger at one side... They usually turn a blind eye to the other. We talk about this in the media all the time. Right wing will not, right wing media is not going to talk bad about right wing politicians. 
or policies. Left-wing media is not going to talk about left-wing policies as being negative. Right. That's what's happening here. The the UN does does this with Palestine, as we said. Um, Listen, the UN Secretary General, who's Antonio Gutierrez, he said that the Hamas attacks on October 7th did not happen in a vacuum. Explain the Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of what he said was suffocating occupation. Okay. Um, many within Israel saw that as the UN justifying the attacks on October 7th. It didn't happen in a vacuum. Israel actually caused this by their actions against Palestine. This, I mean, this conflict has polarized the entire globe. Right. Unlike when Russia invaded Ukraine. This polarized, it's 50-50, honestly. Right. It is it is the definition of polarization. People are sh- choosing sides, and I want to caution against that. Um, I also need to take my own personal advice. As you know personally, mm-hmm. sometimes I don't see both perspectives on this conflict. On most on, conflicts. Right. We all, we all kind of start off with our own, you know, our own... Opinions and emotional response. Yeah. So initially, obviously, we are reacting on emotion and we don't have all the facts yet. We don't have all the information we need in order to make an informed decision. So it can, you know, our opinions, because it is our opinion, it, (laughs) because we don't really have any bearing on this conflict other than like, yeah, we're not there. And, yeah, we just need to take a breath and try to get as much information as possible. And I'll give everybody an out right now. Oh, everybody gets an out. Yep. It is possible, no matter what side you th- you are going to choose, it's possible to say what happened on October 7th was an unjustified and horrific act. Mm-hmm. And then in the same breath, say that bombing entire communities to kill a few fighters is a horrific act as well. Right. Okay. You get the. You can do that. Everybody no. can do that. Yeah. Yeah. I. Yeah. <laughs> There's just so much. Yeah. You ready to? Let's move it along. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's move this conversation along and talk about the after effects of this conflict between Israel and Hamas. And I would like to state as a reminder that when we say Israel or Russia or the United States. We're not talking about the people within those countries, only the governments that are in control, okay? People that are listening. I think that's important. But because of Israel's actions against Palestine, multiple suspected Iranian proxies have declared they will now attack Israeli-owned properties, mainly ships owned by Israeli companies or personnel. And um, last week... We saw the Houthis take over a UK-owned and Japanese-run ship. And this week, Somali pirates entered the arena. Can you explain what happened there and what it means moving forward for maritime shipping? Yeah, so so on Sunday, what was initially thought to be uh, an engagement by the Houthis was actually five armed Somali pirates that boarded a commercial tanker called the Central Park. <laughs> um, and that contained uh phosphoric acid dude i'm sure you know what 
you actually are a brilliant person. You know what phosphoric acid is, but they put it in like Coke, like sodas and stuff mm. for, for taste and right. things like that. Right. But um, they, so the USS Mason, a U.S. military naval vessel and other allied ships demanded that the commercial ship be released. Now, the pirates did, in fact, disembark from that ship and they attempted to get away in these smaller, faster watercraft, but they ultimately surrendered to the U.S. Navy. Now, the interesting thing here is that uh, a Chinese, there's a couple of interesting things, but one is that Chinese naval vessels in the area that were closer off the Horn of Africa failed to respond to the distress call from the Central Park. Is there any indication as to why those Chinese vessels decided not to respond? So there's a there's an historical indication, but there's no public statement by China as of right now. And what is the historical indication? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> well, it's China's had a long anti-piracy fleet in the Middle East. They just um, won't deal with they're like, well, pirates well, are in there, we're not gonna deal with it. It's part of protecting its own merchant ships. So unlike the U.S. and, and members of the, the anti-piracy coalition, U.S., mm-hmm. U.K., things like that, Chinese ships do not engage with pirates unless they're attacking a Chinese ship. So there's precedent. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, there's precedent set by the PLA. But to me, it just further solidifies where China stands in the entire Middle East conflict. I don't know. If they are historically don't engage with pirates, I think it just means it wasn't our ship attacked that's <laughs> not our fish to fry so it, it and very well i don't th- i don't think it means it's like cementing their stance on the middle eastern conflict at all that's not the that's not i don't know that's not what i see i'm not gonna say that's true but i mean if you said right. they historically don't engage with um pirates that are on other ships where they have net like they're not getting anything out of it and they don't what what country yeah, was that? It was- um, well, it was an Israeli-owned. Uh, I can't remember. You know, we we talked about the Bohemian flag of the last one. I right. saw what the flag was, and now I can't remember. Okay. Oh, well, um, no worries. Then. Another like Caribbean type. So I didn't mean flag. to cut you off. You no, no worries. And, and I'm what glad you were going to say. I just did, you I had, didn't get that feeling. I don't know. I appreciate the counter to it. Uh, now, and there's another thing that did pique my interest. Okay. Uh, and that's the fact that as members of the USS Mason were boarding the Central Park, the Houthis in Yemen attacked the ship with ballistic missiles. Huh. So when doing an analysis of the situation, that tells me there's some sort of coordination between the Somalis and the Houthis. Now that makes sense. And it's very interesting because as the USS Mason was pulling all resources to get the Somali pirates... Mm-hmm. That's when the Houthis struck. The it was some sort of coordinated event, and they wanted to gain some intel out of it. Um, well, is Somalia um, historically a Muslim country? Yeah, yeah. Okay. The, I just so, wanted to make sure. Yeah. So I and, thought and, that was the case, but I just wanted to clarify. And Somalia and, and Yemen are pretty close to each other. Um, so. I can like so when we did operations within Somalia or Yemen, mm-hmm. you would use these same, you know, the same units because they were so close to each other. Okay. 
Uh, but this just adds yet another layer to tensions in the Middle East. Well, as things are heating up in the Middle East, let's shift the focus to North Korea to get an update on its widely publicized satellite launch. Um, there are reports now that North Korea snapped pictures of the White House, the Pentagon, and various military bases within the Washington, D.C. area. Ugh. This is in addition to what you mentioned last week when it was reported the U.S. base on the island of Guam was a target of surveillance from this spy satellite. So what is the significance here, if any? And does this maybe change the future of the Korean Peninsula? But I feel like people have already taken photos of these places Okay, that's a great question. That that's well, not a, that's not wasn't a question. You were making yeah, a statement. Like I just feel like this, these things have already been surveilled by yeah. other countries. Everyone listening to this podcast, I guarantee okay. you. Okay. Because I I see I can see where everybody's listening from. Everyone listening to this podcast can go on Google Maps and right. get a satellite image a of the White House for it. What's it called? Something Google World or Google Earth. Google Earth. That's what it is. Google Earth. You can just find the craziest things. You can go. So I was a geospatial intelligence analyst, GIS. That's what we work in. You can get commercial imagery of all of these places. They do blur some of them on the apps, though. Yeah, I've been to some places that are black. You can't see anything. Right. But from a North Korean perspective... They do not have access. Their their government is so isolated. The country is so isolated. They do not have access. I imagine the government does, though. They do not. Even the government doesn't have access to that? Correct. That's wild. They have been restricted. really isolating very, Unless they're getting stuff from China, which has their own, and that could be, that very well could be true. But the citizens of North Korea would not. I wasn't talking about the citizens, babe. No, I, I was know. talking about the government. I, but I know. The people that's gonna, in the higher up. That's going to play into how access. important or okay. or if it's actually up. legitimate or right. not. Right. So that's so it's due to, to North Korea's isolation on a global scale. Um, we honestly don't know the exact capabilities of the satellite. So we don't know. We don't even know what it's taking pictures of. We have not identified that. Honestly, we don't know the capabilities of their analysts. They might have incredible imagery analysts. We don't know. Um, And so having incredible analysts, you could have a terrible... When I was going through in 2001, 2002, the images that we were getting... You just aged yourself. (laughs) But I wanted to do that for a reason. (laughs) Okay, okay. The images that we were looking at, and now this is in the schoolhouse, so obviously they want to get the worst pictures to test your abilities. They were ter- They were not what you can get today for free on the civilian market by going on Google. Yeah, that's so. They the what North Korea may be seeing in their satellites is something that I was seeing maybe in two thousand one. Oh, so that's see. why I wanted to date myself a little bit. Okay, so you're saying they're not getting their four K. Oh yeah, they're they're. <laughs> I don't images. believe it's that much at all. From, okay. from what most analysts say, it's about three to five meter imagery, um, which is good. I could I could get some intel out of that. I could. Uh, there's far better analysts than me doing that, um, and so you could get some stuff out of it. 
That's why I wanted to say I don't know the capabilities of their analysts. They might have okay. some incredible ones. But what worries me right now is the fact that relations between North and South Korea have completely tanked. So uh, the North is posting troops along the border for surveillance purposes. Um, the U.S. has asked for dialogue with North Korea, and Kim Jong-un's sister refused. She said that there's going to be more launches of satellites, ballistic missiles, things like that. Now, you know, I always say not everything's a conspiracy. Not everything is somebody trying to hide something. It's also true that not everything's going to turn into a conflict. Right. But the recent trajectory of the relationship or the lack there, the lack thereof of a relationship between North and South Korea is worrying me at this point. Well, do you have any thoughts on if a conflict may occur in the next year or what the possibility of one um, occurring on maybe the Korean Peninsula? Do you think that's a possibility? Well, once again, I think you wanted me to come up with a new term for this, but North Korea is a wild card. Oh, God, there's got to be another term. I mean, I just don't know how far Kim is willing to go. I don't. No one does. Right. Only him and his inner circle will know. Um, I do think he's going to have to get assurances from China that they're going to support the North if they do something to South Korea. He's going to need assurances from probably all of their allies oh i think so I, I think he'll have to go to russia he'll have to do all this stuff but um it, it's not a smart move in my opinion it's not a smart move if i was leader of north korea a lot of things would change but i wouldn't do this also kim is becoming more and more aggressive in the indo-pacific that's why i put him as the wild card right he, he doesn't have all the resources and yet he's still willing to do this stuff like i always say one mistake can lead to a disaster and he's inching towards possibly making a mistake that disaster would be what you asked about it would be an unwanted or premature conflict on the korean peninsula well speaking of conflicts there was some interesting breaking news this week as reports came out that brazil put their military on high alert as venezuela was said to be amassing troops at the border so can you give a background on what is happening in South America? And then we can get into where you see this possibly going and what this means for the continent. Yeah, sure. So this all stems from a region that's about 62,000 square miles in size. Um, and like everything in geopolitics, it comes down to money and resources. So Venezuela has been in an economic crisis for a while now. And uh, Essequibo that's the area that's in question, has been one of the top producers of oil. I'm sorry, you're, I, I know your Spanish is way better than mine. It's not Quibo. What is it? Quibo. Thank you. Well, I, don't, I don't know if that, but I don't, I don't know. Venezuela, Google I don't, failed me on that one. Well, I don't know. Well, if you click, you clicked on it and that's what it said, Quibo? That's yeah. That's what it said. But well, Matt. I mean, well, then uh, it's Google. Hey, Let's know. not. Maybe they know better. I mean, uh, is Venezuela in Spanish or Port Venezuela? Venezuela Spanish. Spanish or, yeah. Wait. Okay. Then it's Cuba. Because Brazil's Portuguese. Um, and then the the Venezuelan line, the Venezuelan borders were actually set in place by the Spanish. Mm, okay. Those things I do know. <laughs> I might not be able to say what it is. But that's okay. That's okay. Now, that area, Essequibo, was 
but it it I... has been one of the top producers of oil since 2015. That's when Exxon Mobil found oil off the coast. They've been producing it at a, at a high rate. Now, Venezuela has always considered it as one of its own because the region was within its borders during the Spanish colonial period. And it's long disputed the border that actually was decided by international arbitrators in 1899. That's when uh, Guayana, which is... Guiana. Uh, yeah, Guiana. Is that how it is? I don't think it's Gui. I don't know. Now I'm not <laughs> sure anymore. You're making me question. Oh, no, I... be sure. You are far <laughs> better than I am. So I'll go with... No, no, no. Guiana. No, no, I don't know. Maybe... But it was... It's. It's been a... That I just is, feel like this is something that should be researched. Well, if you can't Before do it with come Google, on here and don't make do it fools with of ourself. Yeah, we're making ask, fools of ourselves. Ask someone, I guess. If someone does know how to pronounce either one of those places, Esequibo or Guiana, tell us Yasti. how to pronounce it correctly. The way you say it, it's correct. I can, no, it I can just hear be. it in your accent. No, I mean, just it might not be, so. But it's it also... A British colony. Rick will tell us. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Rick will. He'll send me yeah. a message. Rick, I know you're listening. Like, Listen, you idiot. That's not how <laughs> you will. say it. <laughs> He's also wanting us to go down to Colombia, Colombia with him. Aye. Um, Aye. So we might do 2024, if it brings us riches, we might be doing a, a live show in Medellin or something. <laughs> you're a goober. But, so uh Guiana is a British colony, mm-hmm. and so the Brits made the lines. They put Esequibo in <sighs> Guiana, but since 2015, Venezuela has begun to put more pressure on that region so that they can take claim of the oil that's being tapped in that area. Okay, so why is this becoming a big deal now? Do you think they're just feeling emboldened by all these people trying to get their Ooh. hand back? Very, very good, astute observation. The, we are distracted there's lots by... Of, there's lots of border conflicts going on right now, and lots of people are trying to get the land that they feel is rightfully theirs. Is that what's happening? And or Venezuela is a supporter, an ally to Russia, China, Iran, countries okay. that are trying to reestablish borders. But... Venezuela is also in an economic crisis. Haven't they? I don't even remember when they haven't been in an economic crisis. There was a time they so I would so when Maduro first took over, he is when the socialist that? What leader. Year that? Oh my goodness, it was over a decade ago. Okay, okay. Venezuela was thriving because he private he he um made all the oil companies a part of the government. Okay, so he was taking in all the money from the oil companies. Which, right. yeah. So they all left, meaning the once Venezuela tapped all the oil within Venezuela, that's all they had. They didn't get any money. And so recently, within the last five to six years, Venezuela's completely collapsed. Their economy's completely collapsed because their main export is... Oil. Oil. Now, petroleum represents more than 85% of Venezuela's exports. That's where they make their money. Right. That's been severely mismanaged by Maduro, the president of, of Venezuela and his administration. Now, he wants to hold a vote to have, have officially recognize Esequibo as a part of Venezuela. I've just given up on you. You should. Everybody should. Uh, 
I mean, maybe that's how you pronounce it. And if it is, then Ricky will, will tell us. I will. Nope. I will happily just accept that I'm wrong. But it just sounds. Uh, it's a yeah. It's, it's, so, it's a white person's so way of saying. It. And yeah, it does. It sounds like we're just trying to anglicize. Sounds like I think black pepper is spicy. Yeah, it does. When I like say it, it does. But um, you don't now, think that, so <laughs> no, I don't. But Maduro's government did hold a practice vote on November nineteenth because they a wanted to help. Practice vote, right? They say they wanted to help voters understand the issue, but really, he wanted to see Just wanted to see which way it would swing, and then be like, if it was more towards him, he'd be like, all right, we're going to have this election. But if it's exactly. not going the way he wants it to, he'll be like. I don't think you guys understand what I'm trying to do here. And so we haven't, no, no official has given the results or the details about that vote, about mm. accepting that portion into to Venezuela. Um, so that should tell you. Now, I'll also say that um, if they do vote to approve it, they have to grant citizenship to residents. So that's a you know if it's if it's approved they'll have to give citizenship to the residents so that's another key point to the vote. Do the residents want citizenship? Yeah, now so that depends on who you're going to trust, right? Okay. Same thing we talk about with Israel Hamas, you have to figure out who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust anybody? The people on the ground, the people okay. who are there experiencing it. Are you going to trust that I want to hear from? I don't want to hear a government figurehead come up okay. and be like this is what they want. All right, you're, I know you're telling me to shut up, but just wait a second. Okay, go. Well, now I'm now I don't remember what I was going to say. So go ahead. Sorry. It's okay. Well, according to the Venezuelan state media, mm-hmm. Escobans was, es- that, was that was that better? Escobar, Esquibon. I don't know. I'm done with this one. Okay. Um, they already so Venezuelan state media says that they already feel like they're part of Venezuela. Now, does okay. that remind you of anything? They already feel like they're a part of Venezuela. The people in Ukraine, I don't know. Exactly. Where Russia said they already feel a part of Russia. Right. So hold the vote so that we can annex these areas. Right. They also, the Venezuelan state media also said the only thing standing in the way of approval is reforming the Constitution and making English, because this is a majority English speaking, it's a British colony, making English one of the official languages of Venezuela. Okay. On the flip side, international media... So it's not the West's fault in this? Because usually it's us. Oh, it's the West's fault, definitely. Oh, okay, okay. Just wanted to clarify. Um, Now, international media has a different perspective. They claim that the people there are proud of their indigenous heritage. Okay. They don't want to be a part of Venezuela. Um, Then leave them alone. They said that they've talked to people on the ground who point to the names of landmarks, which are given in the native language of the region. And they don't want English to be... They don't want that either, correct. Yeah. Um, And that was evidence that the areas never really belonged to Venezuela. They say it's it's their indigenous land that they want to keep. And they also insist they don't want their lives disrupted by this upcoming referendum. Just leave us alone. Leave them alone, Venezuela. Well, if... (laughs) If I'm reading the tea leaves correctly here, this is why Venezuela is amassing troops along the disrupted, I mean, disputed border, right? Like, they want to quickly quell 
any uprising that may happen once the vote to approve the borders is announced, which that's what they're leaning towards, right? Yeah, that, I mean, that's exactly what's going on here. And it's kind of a con. So it, to look at it. Let's zoom out a little bit. How did Russia do it? They invaded first and then had referendums, right? Mm-hmm. Probably believing if they just asked for a vote in those regions, they probably wouldn't get what they wanted. Venezuela sees it differently, but they don't want to leave anything to chance. So they're going to keep the troops there instead of just invading initially without the vote. That's why I go to the internal polling. It's probably polling in favor of Venezuelan, Venezuelans accepting this as part of Venezuela. So, But the, it's the Venezuelans accepting the Cubans. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But the they don't want. Oh, they get a they they'll get a vote. They get to vote too, or just the population is so far more in Venezuela. Okay, that I think they're going to get the vote. Right, they'll they'll get it to go yes. That's why they're. But if they have the yes vote, they have to amass troops there because they know that the population does not want to accept it, and that's what Brazil's worried about. They're worried that the conflict is going to spill over and destabilize the whole region. So they're trying to get ahead of it. So when is this vote taking place? That's happening this Sunday. That's December 3rd. They're going to vote. So we're going to have... It's so random that all these countries are having these votes and stuff on Sunday. Yep. I don't get it. You know, we use... Well, we do Tuesdays, right? Sundays are our day of no one's going to go out and do anything but have brunch um that's an american thing yeah that's definitely american for sure well we will obviously be keeping an eye on this potential conflict and no doubt we will have more information throughout this week leading up to the release of next week's episode of this week explained on friday so let's get to a listener question which we received by email and this is coming from one of our original listeners chad hey chad hey chad I literally texted you earlier, but hey, Chad. So he asked if Nixon had not gone to China in 1973, which opened up trade to China and allowed businesses to open in China, would communism have failed in China? And would they have gone back to pre-World War II China? Or would they have become like Hong Kong and more democratic? And I also have a follow-up question. I watched Adam ruin everything, and he said the reason that China makes everything now over the U.S. is that they have geographical space and natural resources that allows them to be the biggest manufacturers on the planet. Is that correct? Well, I will get to the first question. Okay, yeah, do it bit by bit. Okay, so the first question is because it's about by Nixon. the yeah, it's about Nixon. If Nixon had not gone to China in 1973, which obviously opened up trade and allowed businesses to open on mainland China, would communism have failed? And would... Okay, that's one question. Yeah. I, I'm so, just trying to do it bit by bit because that that's a lot. And and we're trying to play hindsight as 2020 right now. Or, okay. you know, even the, the question of different universes and things how would this look if historically it didn't happen and it's difficult to predict because we can't predict what humans are going to do yeah Um, now that visit was initially described as quote the week that changed the world and it 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 really did 
Uh, it opened I up. I guess at that point, yeah. Yeah, it opened up China to everything. We've got now billions of people who watch the NBA, who are, you know, doing business. U.S. businesses are doing business in China to billions of people. That's very important to those businesses because that means money. We actually got asked to move our business to China. Which it was Japan. No, it was Japan. Oh, it was Japan? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a different story. Um, okay, and, I forgot. And one I'm not opposed to because I love Japan. So Yeah. Um, I will say it's, Im- it's important to note that... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry that I misremembered that. Oh, no worries. Completely. Yeah. I mean, either one is, is crazy to me. That any yeah, country to equate the two, they're but two any country would ask us to, yeah, just yeah. Why would you want us there? <laughs> yeah, the U.S. doesn't even want us here. Just kidding. <laughs> um, no, it's it's worth it's worth noting that opening trade to China, uh, it didn't happen overnight. So you were right, like that quote: "The week that changed the world." It really it took a week. It didn't. It wasn't that week. You know, oh, okay. this was a gradual process. It began in the 1970s, but it continued through the, the 80s and 90s. Uh, and, and I will say that China lied to Nixon. China told Nixon that we are no longer a communist nation. We are opening up to business. We want free trade. Look at China now. And you can see that that was a lie. That's not really what they wanted. But, they wanted to control all the businesses for the government. Well, what so the problem was China was about was on the verge of economic collapse, much like the Soviet Union. In nineteen seventy three? Yeah. Okay. They were at a point in nineteen seventy three. Now remember, China sided with I Vietnam. can't remember. I wasn't born yet. So China sided with with uh, communism within the war with Korea. Uh-huh. Um with Vietnam. And with all of with all those wars that China pulled all the resources into, they were on the verge of economic collapse. So they had to do something. That's why they were really adamant that Nixon come over. Can we restore, you know, can we restore our relationship? And I like I said, they lied. They said this this is not so that we can go back to our communist ways. It's because we want an open and free market. Look at China now. It is not an open and free market. Now, another aspect to this is uh, the the Nixon visit. It didn't only open U.S.-China relations. Um, it, it also did much to open China's own doors to the world because they, they were isolated, much like North Korea is right now. Right. So it's also seen that meeting with Nixon is also seen as the, the catalyst for the fall of the Soviet Union. Because that happened, the Soviet Union fell in what 89 nine in 19 but how was china opening their doors a catalyst for the fall of because the soviet they union? Moved, because they moved away from being an ally to the soviet union and supporting the economy of the of the soviet union to oh. being an ally to the west or at least and being right being open for business to the west okay so so, so that happened it's so while it's possible that China may have followed a different path if Nixon had not visited, it's impossible to say for sure what the path would have been. Would they right, have especially if they were collapsed? so isolated? Like yeah. what would have happened? 
would they have collapsed or would they have found a way to human nature, right? Human nature is to to find a way to to continue to exist. We've been doing that from the dawn of time. That's the nature of a cockroach, too. If they like, I won't and, get into and, be, I won't I'm get into saying, how humans are cockroaches, but no, like, I'm just it, saying like every. I just, I'm just. You were saying human specifically, but literally every organism. They, yeah, they we won't survive. Try to survive, right. and I chose roach because <laughs> you because <laughs> I hate them, and they've been <laughs> around for so long, and they just won't die. It just and they think that about us too. <laughs> roaches, yeah, they're probably yeah, they're, tired of us. <laughs> I don't kill roaches. What I do is I get my 15-year-old child to grab them with her hand, and then she throws them outside. What was his name? She had a pet. Jabroni. Jabroni. Yep. Jabroni the cockroach. We're we're getting, sorry, I know you guys want us to answer this question, but. Burkina Faso. I came home from Burkina Faso. You came home from Burkina Faso. I picked him up. To a pet roach named Jabroni. And our daughter had a pet, uh, and not, I don't know what kind of roaches you guys might have, but if you guys have never seen a palmetto palmetto bug, the big, long, ugly, brown, scary, horrifying, palmetto bugs are what they're called in some places. Oh, she made a bed for this thing and everything. Our kid. So we might still have the picture. Do you have the picture? Babe, you put that on your Instagram literally five billion years ago. All right. If you so want. It's probably in your archive. If you want the picture. Because you don't have it. Give me an email. Anymore. I might be able to send it to you. But it is a legitimate bed. Uh, but Sorry, I want to go Chad. historically Sorry, and why Chad. we can't hindsight 55. And it wasn't trying to call you cockroaches either. Okay. <laughs> Another caveat. We have I just make sure. we have We have basically this podcast is now just. Just caveat upon caveat Just. upon caveat so that no one misunderstands what we're saying. Yes. Because we're not very good in the moment at explaining ourselves. We have to like say it and then remove ourselves from it and then come back in and be like, no, I mean, like clarify, further clarify it. Sometimes that's not good for podcasting, but I think this is. Well, this is Chad's question, so I don't care. Yeah. People have already turned this off. <laughs> I love you, Chad. That's my boy. Yeah, we we I love, we I love yeah you, we love you, Chad. I'm sorry. We got to give you a hard time here too. <laughs> yeah. Like we already um, do it through text and call and face to face. So let's just let's that let's throw in. Do another... it to the world, the global yeah. podcast that is this week. Explain. Uh, we are not going to get sponsors anymore. Oh, <laughs> get your blend jet. Get your blend jet. Oh yeah, we haven't talked about that. Get your blend jet. Um, but I do want to say. That we're looking hindsight twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Would the Soviet Union have fallen if China did not do this, or would those two mainly communist countries work together to remain the major power players like they are now, and then continue the Cold War? The entire globe could be different. I do agree that it it did change the world. Right. Geopolitics would be totally different today had China continued to be isolated. Now, all this is just history. And the fact of the matter is that the, those three major economies, the U.S., Russia, Soviet, slash Soviet Union, and China, are back in what I consider Cold War 2.0. Oh, cool. So, pendulum swings back to Back the other was. way, yeah. 
Uh, so the second question. that pendulum hang and quit moving? Like that pendulum can stop moving. I know. Just dangle there it right won't. in the middle. I'm, I keep talking to it every day. It won't do it. Um, getting to the second question. It is true that China has become a major manufacturing hub in recent years. But the reason the reasons for this are complex. They're multifaceted. Uh, China's natural resources and geographical location may have paid a role, played a role in its rise as a manufacturing powerhouse. But other factors like government policies, labor costs and infrastructure investments have also contributed to the challenges that its economy is facing right now. And this is why Taiwan is so important to China. They want the resources in Taiwan. But also China heavily relies on Africa for resource extraction. And it gets most of its resources from that continent. Uh, The fact of the matter is Chinese mining and battery companies have invested $4.5 billion in lithium mines in Africa over the past two years. Wow. Some analysts are predicting that China could control up to one-third of the world's lithium mining capacity by 2025. Wow, again. Yeah. Think about that. One-third. That's in, that's crazy. It's crazy. Now, some people like the host of Adam Ruins Everything. Oh, I, okay. I was like, who the hell is Adam? He's <laughs> I mean, he mentioned I no love loss for Adam. The only thing is he's ruined for me is watching his show ever. I think I he's he's insufferable. Know. I don't know he, who this is. Uh, I'll show him to you after this. I don't and... know if I care enough, though. Okay, I won't show it. <laughs> Yeah, you don't have to show me. I just, I was just confused by the random Adam pop. I watched yeah, Adam ruin everything, and I'm like, what does that mean? So it's, I think it's I a YouTube-based show, or it's some sort oh, of streaming okay. thing. Adam ruins everything. He basically tries to take historical things and tell people what he says is the truth behind but it. But there's no historical basis. He's just there. Like, no, there is. Is some. he doing more inferences? <laughs> yes. So. Unlike what what we try to do, which is bring to light the nuance of everything and that, yeah, everything in history that you learned was taught by the winners of history. And there's a lot of nuance to that history and that impacts today. I wouldn't I wouldn't even call it nuance. I'd say scrubbing or like watering down of history. But in favor ta- of the people who like had won. <laughs> Would you just let me finish my damn sentence? <laughs> but I don't agree with the statement that history is is written by the winners. History is written by the worldview of wherever you're at. So yeah, yeah, that's if true. You're, if you're us, okay, let me bring you're a so disgusting good. thing. Okay, we were raised in Louisiana, right in the South. Oh yeah, we I remember that. were taught a different perspective <laughs> that we don't agree with about yeah, the Civil War. The dirty South, baby, dirty South. Yeah, the dirty perspective. Oh, yeah. of the Civil War. The wrong perspective, I would say, is what I was taught about the Civil War. Yeah. So history there in Louisiana was not written by the winners. It was written by the people in power. Right. And it was written by the worldview of those particular people. And I think Adam ruins everything. That show is written by the worldview of Adam, the guy that does the show. Oh, well, he doesn't agree with my perspective, I would say. Probably not. He believes the U.S. and the West are the main culprits behind the destruction of Asia and Africa. He's not going to say China is destroying it. I will say we're all destroying it. What about England? England. England. I'm saying we all destroy it. Yeah, we all collectively 
had our parts in what's gone on in, in these countries for sure. And you're going to hear that on this podcast. I'll call it, we'll both talk about that. But you're not going to hear much about the destruction China brings to those countries from Currently, right now, at this very moment, what they're yeah. doing with their yeah. Belts and Roads Initiative. Well, that's not in Africa. That's in South America, isn't it? It's all, yeah. No, it's Africa. It's, it's Asia. It's South America. Yeah. Okay. I thought it was just one continent. I didn't know. How about you plug next episode of Insightful Inquiries? It's coming up. Oh, yes. Soon. So I had a conversation with uh, Major Logan Phillips. He is currently an officer within the, the U.S. Army. He is a nuclear physicist. He's a graduate wow. of West Point and Yale. And he's going to get his PhD in physics. That's um, awesome. Yeah, he's he's an incredible person. He is an author. We really get into his book. Uh, his book is called Number Your Stories and Lead Like a Legend. And we'll have a clip next week for that. But December 3rd, so that's this Sunday, it comes out uh I, I would say everybody listen. We we get into some of the stories. There's some emotional things, and it was a great conversation. December third seems to be like the day to it release is. things. Right, well, I mean, we're releasing the episode of Insightful Inquiries, and the the world knew that, so they're like, you know what? Let's hold some really important votes yeah. on that day, Sunday. Maybe we'll distract this week. Explain from actually. Talking about talking. Us. You don't want them talking about us anymore. What I want. So, do you have anything else? No, that's it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay. Well, just want to thank every one of you for listening to our humble little geopolitical podcast. We hope that you found it both informative and engaging. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. And if you would like in-depth coverage of these stories more, follow us on Instagram at Oakland Analytics. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there.